Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. I hope you've all had a good Christmas and are enjoying a relaxing time ahead of the new year. We've got a very special edition of my 70s TV childhood for you this week, as we are taking some time to remember the late and much-missed Bob Monkhouse, who died 20 years ago this week, taken far too soon by prostate cancer. Bob Monkhouse was an ever-present of my TV childhood memories, from working with Bernie the Bolt on The Golden Shot to Celebrity Squares by way of Sunday Night at the London Palladium, Bob was one of those people who grabbed your attention on the screen and made you listen, as well as making you laugh. To help us mark the anniversary of Bob's passing, we're delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Colin Edmonds. And what can I say about Colin by way of introduction? Colin sold his first jokes aged 16, and in a career spanning 40 years, he's worked on more than a 1,000 television shows, been credited as writer, program associate, associate producer, or series producer, working with a host of recognisable stars, including Sir Roger Moore, Sir Michael Caine, Paul Daniels, Jimmy Tarbert, Chris Tarrant, Des O'Connor, and even Roland Ratt. And, most notably for our discussion, Bob Monkhouse. Colin is the host of the Marvellous Behind the Scenes podcast, which explores how television programmes are put together and all of the different people involved in the production process. As someone with a keen interest in TV, I find it a fascinating listen, particularly as Colin appears to know everybody in the television industry. And they're not content with being TV royalty. Colin's also an acclaimed steampunk author with his highly regarded Steam, Smoke and Mirrors novels, which are read throughout the world. Colin, welcome to My 70s TV Childhood. Thank you very much indeed, Oliver. And thank you for that kind introduction. I will now proceed to disabuse your listeners and your viewers entirely of everything you said. That introduction was nothing to do with him at all. <laughs> no, I'm sure that's not the case, Colin. One thing that jumps out is, you became a joke writer at age 16. How on earth does that actually happen? I don't remember anything on my school curriculum to say the joke writing class. How did that come about? I was very fortunate, I suppose. I was sort of half good at writing. Well, I could write an essay, but I loved English and I loved penmanship. But at the same time, I was fascinated growing up by those radio comedies of a Sunday lunchtime. Round the Horn, the Navy Lark, the Clitheroe Kid, they were meat and drink to me. And I used to listen to those every Sunday avidly, particularly Round the Horn, because it was so full of fun, joy and jokes. And that really got me interested in that kind of stuff. And I used to write columns for the school newspaper, which were vaguely humorous. And I think they were accepted because no one else could be bothered to write columns for this school newspaper. But it gave me the chance to explore wordplay and get into the practice of the typewriter. And then at the same time, I was watching shows like Sunday Night at the London Palladium on television in the old black and white days. Mm. And they were big variety shows. And you could see stars from all around the world juggling and singing and ballet dancing and telling jokes. And it was particularly the comedians that, that fascinated me. I just loved the reaction that the comedian would say something. And you would get, get that reaction from the crowd. Added to that, our annual treat. My parents would save up diligently for our annual treat to go to the Golders Green Hippodrome to see the pantomime every year. And to find yourself in that theatrical environment with live music, lights, and the crowd 
laughing and reacting to what was happening on the stage. Yeah, that, that's what whetted my appetite. And I thought, oh, I fancy writing some comedy. Then there was a show called Golden Shot, The Golden Shot on mm. TV. I started on a Saturday, Saturday evening. It was then transferred to a, a Sunday afternoon. And it was hosted by Bob Monkhouse. And I was so impressed by how this man could marshal all this chaos that was going on around him. Because the golden shot, in case your viewers and listeners are a bit puzzled by the concept of the show, you will not believe it. It was members of the public firing crossbows at targets. No electronic wizardry at all. Very few safety precautions, too. I think there was a rope just to keep people back a little bit out of the way of these flying bolts. But you've got total amateurs handling lethal weapons in order to win a few prizes. So it was fraught with danger, health and safety non-existent. <laughs> Suddenly, this man with nervous contestants wielding these deadly weapons managed to make great entertainment from this particular show. And I thought, oh boy, he's good. I like what's going on here. Then, to make my answer to your question even longer, mm. I noticed that at the beginning of every show, he would perform topical jokes, quips, references, and jokes based on the headlines of actually that day. So any news item that had happened on a Sunday morning that had appeared in the Sunday papers, he had a quip for, he had a joke for. I thought, ooh, I like the topicality of those jokes. And that's what inspired me to send jokes to him, topical jokes. Write them on the Friday, rush to the post, send them to Birmingham, the studio's where the Golden Shot was produced. It would arrive there on the Saturday, I hoped. Hopefully, those jokes would end up in Bob Monkhouse's dressing room, or at least the envelope. And with a bit of luck, he'd open the envelope and maybe he'd gaze upon my jokes with some sympathy. So that's really how I got her going. That's amazing. I mean, I remember the Golden Shot fondly. I, I seem to remember things used to go wrong quite often mm. when you were watching. Yeah, it was that chaos which he could marshal and master and stay on top of and be entertaining at the same time. And I, I, it was such a remarkable performance. And I was so impressed with, with that performance, per se, to hold that whole thing together and bring it out on time. Oh, boy. Oh, no, this, this man's ever so good. I think I'd like to try and get involved with whatever they're doing. So how did that happen, Colin? You sent in the jokes. Did you receive, mm. a, uh, receive a letter back or a phone call or something like that? Uh, sent him jokes for a number of weeks. Mm. You're kind of spitting into the dark, really, because you didn't know if the stuff was getting to him. But it's one of those things, Oliver, you know, if you want it badly enough, you persist. And so I persisted. And then one day, out of the blue, I got a, a letter from one of the writers on the show, or the writer on the show, Wally Morstan, who said, thank you for sending Bob these jokes. Some of them aren't very good indeed, but Bob sees the most potential and he's going to write to you. And that was very gracious of Wally, who was the writer on the show. Mm. Suddenly, young whippersnapper trying to muscle in on his territory. But he was enormously gracious and of ever such a good writer. And then I got a, a handwritten letter from Bob saying, I'm fascinated to know that you're 16. Do keep writing and keep it coming. I can't use any at the moment. I'm not using that one for this reason. I'm not using that one for that reason. So suddenly I got a masterclass in joke writing from one of the great masters. And so you, you learn by study, watching his performance on the show and the construction of the jokes. And also that little bit of advice in that handwritten, colourful ink that he used to use. And that was the inspiration. I want you to keep going. 
it's exactly what you needed. It, it was the kick that you needed to think maybe I might be able to might be able to do something here. That's incredibly generous of, of the man, isn't it? That um, taking that time to encourage you, to give you some feedback on your efforts. And I find that quite unusual. And I can't imagine that happening much today, never mind back in the 1970s. The thing is, Oliver, I used to send my jokes to an awful lot of people, various comedians. Right. I never got a response. And his was the only letter that arrived of not only acknowledgement, but encouragement. I suppose that's what set him apart from the other performers of that era as well, of such a generous spirit. But I think maybe to a certain extent, he could identify with my age because he started very early. I think he witnessed the the audacity, really, the chutzpah of, <laughs> of, of, of sending your jokes to such a high-profile performer. So how did things develop from there with Bob and with your joke writing? He said to me, I do an awful lot of cabaret. So if you could write some topical jokes on a frequent basis, I would try very hard to use whatever I think's worthy of use. So send me whatever you want, whenever you want. Here's my address. And he lived in St. John's Wood at the time, which wasn't far from where we were living in, in Northwest 10. Mm. And so I would send my jokes to the house. And then one, oh now bear in mind, I'm still at school. And bear in mind, I think my A-level suffered as a consequence of me trying to pursue this career. No ambition whatsoever to go to university because, you know, us working class lads from Paddington, you don't go to university. But what was another inspiration for me was my mother saying to me, why are you wasting your time on this plastic typewriter writing these jokes? People like us don't do that. And that was like a red rag mm. to a to me. I thought, okay, I'm going to show. I guess that's been my, my impetus, really. If I, barriers are thrown up, I try very hard to either go through them or at least get around them. And so that was a big push for me as well, proving my parents wrong. And then one day I joined IPC magazines because when I left school, I needed a job, but I would never make a living as a joke writer. But I did get a check from Bob for what was then a decent amount of money. I used these jokes. That one went quite well. This one didn't, but I changed it to that. And if you'll keep them coming, I hope this will keep you going. And once again, you know, you got a, a handwritten check signed by Bob Monkhouse for a hundred or so pounds, which was a king's ransom in those days. Mm. And that's the other important thing to consider with Bob. He knew the value of comedy and of original comedy. And he was one of the great joke writers. He was a marvellous comedy writer. But he was always open for additional input. And it bought him a bit of time. It enabled him to pursue his other hobbies. But also it was another school of thought. From my working class background, I think it gave his comedy another perspective because I had a more kind of working class, down to earth, more man of the people, if you like, mm. view on the stories of the day. I, I knew what working class folk were thinking because I was one of them. Bear in mind, of course, he was from middle class background, lived a, a rarefied show business life. So I think it gave his comedy another perspective from someone so youthful and someone's quite, quite so rag-ass working class. <laughs> I mean, that shows an incredible generosity in terms of encouraging you, but actually uh, quite a, a good knowledge of the audience and trying to get things that relate to the audience. And I can't imagine there were that many comics working at that time who would actually take that time to consider what they were doing, how, where they got the material from. I always got the impression that everything that Bob Bankhouse did, he was extremely professional about. 
Mm. Nothing, nothing was left to chance. The effortless jokes were obviously the result of lots of hard work. And that's the trick. So many of the comedians at that time would work their act and they could make a very good living wandering around the clubs, club to club, week to week, using the same old act for years. Well, that wasn't good enough for Bob. He wanted to refresh the act constantly. And by using topical jokes at the beginning of his act, they were easy laughs, really, you know, Oliver, because if you were to write a joke, an okay joke based on the headlines, it's the immediacy, it's the topicality which the audience appreciates. And that really helps the laugh as well. Mm. The fact that the audience are aware that the performer is taking an enormous amount of trouble about them. And I think they respond accordingly. Yes, yeah, some of my topicals might not have been deathless wit, but they were, <laughs> they, were, they were kind of all right. And it, they did the job. And then Bob could settle into the act that was constantly evolving. I mean, one example, it was uh, to anchor it in time. It's not a great example. It's one I can only think of. As I, I went along to the Lakeside Club in Surrey for a late night cabaret. And Prince William had just been born. And the Princess of Wales, I'd call him Wills. And it occurred to me that when, um, when his dad's changing the nappy, he gets a Wills whiff. Now, you have to know that a Wills whiff was a little cigarette at that time. It's not a great joke, but it's, it's in the nappy area. And anything in the nappy area is, is a bit of a laugh. And Bob said, oh, I don't know about that. And I said, really? I think, oh, I, I, don't know. I think he might play because it's an SHIT joke. Uh, I'll give it a go. So... Fair play, he went out, performed the joke with his topical routine, and it got a laugh. And he actually said on microphone in front of the lakeside crowd, you were right, Carl. <laughs> but that was a salutary lesson, really, because even the great master, you're never certain of a joke. You think it's going to be funny. You hope it's going to be funny. No guarantee. No guarantee the crowd are going to run with it. But luckily, on that occasion, it was... <laughs> <laughs> this nappy-changing joke involving the, the future king of England <laughs> managed to uh, vaguely impress that crowd. That's really interesting, Colin. You touch on the sort of creative process as to how the joke sort of came to be formed and ended up being performed. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about how that worked, that creative process? Well, gosh, it's like, it is strange alchemy, really. It's plucking stuff from the ether. It's studying a subject long and hard. There, there are tricks. Yes, sure. Like all jobs, you get to know the tricks of the trade and the shortcuts, which help you towards the end result, which hopefully is a laugh. You play with the words. What's it like backwards? For example, I remember vividly when I was working at IPC Magazine, sitting on the Bakerloo line, going from Queen's Park Station to Waterloo. And I was at Kilburn Park and Robert Mugabe was in power at that time. And I wrote down the word Mugabe and looked at it. And then I wrote... Mugabe backwards, and it's spelled E by gum. <laughs> and I thought, oh, there's something in that. So suddenly, that was the DNA. That was the genesis of that joke. And I remember looking up, see, seeing Kilburn Park Station on the, the Underground Roundel, and the gosh, yeah, that, that, that image lives with me. And suddenly, you, that's the basis of the joke, and then you dress mm. it up with the words in front of it. And basically, Bob performed it as Mugabe, spelled backwards, E by gum. And for some reason, the crowd laughed. And it's sort of been used latterly, oddly enough, uh, by, by other performers, which doesn't distress me in the slightest. When Bob's in cabaret, you can work very saucy material. 
not mm. blue material, but saucy stuff, sexy stuff. Cliff Richard had just embarked on this relationship with Subaka. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Cliff, obviously known for his religious fervor. So in my joke, what about Cliff Richard? He's getting together with the Subaka. Mm, I wonder if he does a sermon on the mount. Okay. So suddenly the word mount <laughs> is the pivot point. That's the laugh point. Mm. And if you can make the connection between biblical stuff and romantic stuff, physical encounters, the word mount, that's the spark of the joke. Mm. That's the kind of thing you're looking for. And also added to that, you've got the embellishment of Cliff Richard getting up to that kind of hanky-panky in this world that we were creating. And then suddenly that was the basis of a laugh. Whether it's a good joke or not, I don't know, but it got a laugh. I remember saying to Bob, mm, about 10 years before he passed away, that I'd seen an interview with John Lloyd, the producer of Spitting Image, who said that we pour over the scripts so diligently. You know, um, is that funny? Is that funny? Is that funny? And I told this to Bob, and he said, that's interesting because he said, I don't think like that. I will look at a page of jokes, and I, will, I won't say, is that funny? I will say, will it get a laugh? And he said, there's a difference. Because mm. when you're a comedian, you need that great crack of laughter from the crowd. You need a reaction. Fine, the audience sitting there looking at one another saying, that's very amusing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very witty, yes. That's not what you want as a comedian. You need that crack of laughter. And that was, once again, was another salutary lesson in the art of, and science of comedy for me. Will it get a laugh? I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, some of the greatest live comedians I've ever seen, I couldn't tell you what their jokes were, but I remember laughing. Mm. I remember the euphoria of, of enjoying what they're, they're saying and finding it funny. Couldn't tell you what any of the jokes were. Isn't it fascinating? It's as slippery as a piece of liver. You can't get a hold of it, really. Bob would say, I'd phone him in the car coming home. Uh, what, what was it like? He said, they were buggers, he said, but I made them have it. And it's interesting that that crowd were being less than cooperative. Now, was that because the coach had broken down on the way to the club or the car park was full or it was raining outside? The dynamics of the situation weren't to the best. And yet you knew that the stuff Bob was doing was bonkers, brilliant stuff. But on that night, it didn't quite happen because there are so mm. many disparate elements which are coming in to knock stuff out of kilter. And once again, that's, that's another fascinating an interesting aspect of what makes comedy work. Once again, you can never tell. No, and, uh, and obviously Bob took a great deal of time and paid a lot of attention. Uh, again, going back to that professionalism, I suppose, making sure that he considered the audience and so on. Oh, absolutely. You've never seen anyone look at material and dissect it so carefully, like a surgeon, I suppose. One joke I'd written was the government's having these monthly problems I think the government is suffering from PMT, Prime Minister Thatcher. Okay, that's the joke that I wrote on the page. It's okay. It's an observation. You've got PMT, Prime Minister Thatcher. Yeah, it's okay. So he got a hold of that thought and he confected it, polished it, burnished it, changed it around and said, poor Mrs. Thatcher, what's a month? She goes through a terrible time. I think she's suffering from prime ministerial tension. Now, suddenly, that's a much better piece of phrase-making. Mm. And in a topical environment, it would go very, very nicely. But the source material was PMT. I had the wrong angle for that. And he, with his infinite 
magnificence, focused it up beautifully. That's a fantastic talent to have. Mm. But I mean, you, you must have got to know Bob very well over the years of working with him. What, what was he like as a man? He was the most um, articulate and eloquent and generous with so many things, particularly his time, gentleman you could ever wish to meet. Yeah, when you consider this, this person had been famous for all my life. Bob Bunkhouse was hosting the Royal Variety Show the year I was born. That's the stand of, of that performer. He'd been famous for all his life and I think all of our lives. But it affected him not. He treated everybody exactly the same, be it the floor assistant who would knock on the door of the dressing room and say, ready for you now, Mr. Monkhouse. He would treat that person with exactly the same civility, politeness and generosity as he would the executive producer sitting in the gallery. And that was the nature of the fellow. He was appearing at the Savoy in Cabaret at a private function at the Savoy Hotel. And um, his driver rolled up in the Mercedes and, and out got Bob and out got I. And the guys in the top hat outside said, hi, Bob, how are you? Nice to see you. And Bob would say, hi, Gerald, how are you? How's your wife? Is she better? Oh, yeah, much better. Thank you very much indeed. And he would he would give them a little tip and someone would carry his bags up to the room and he'd give them a little tip. And it occurred to me in, in the 80s, he'd done 50 quid before he'd got to the room. Now, <laughs> that's not to say that he was bribing them, but such was his generosity, knowing that they're lowly paid. If I can help them, I will. And so many people don't. Mm, mm. That's just the nature of the fellow. He was, he was enormously generous of spirit, I think. And the fact that he took time over people. So many musicians I've bumped into, worked in clubs at Batley and Sheffield and various other places, say that Bob would remember us and, you know, how the kids and that kind of stuff. And they get that strange kind of wonderful memory. What it does, Oliver, as well. I was talking to a cameraman, uh, Nigel Saunders, about this on my podcast. He always had time for the crew, and the crew then love you for it. They lo and they will go out of their way to help you. You know, I've, I've worked on TV shows where the performers would never say anything to any of the crew on a five-year run. I think, oh, gosh, what? Just, just say hello, because then everyone's going to be rooting for you. And... If you're not polite, they just do their, they're going to do their jobs at the best of their ability and that's it. But it's nice when you go home and you say to your family, yeah, that Bob Monkass is a lovely fella. And then everyone tells their friends. And so the word spreads by osmosis, I suppose. But it was never phony with him. It was always genuinely meant. And you speak to anyone now about Bob who met him. They might not have liked him before they met him, but after they met him, they loved him. Oh, that's lovely to hear. And how did his fellow performers regard him? Because I can imagine there was, might have been a bit of professional jealousy or other things. How did they feel about him? Oh, yeah, more, <laughs> more than you might imagine, truthfully. <laughs> but I, th I think they all admired him. And I think it was, it was that, that admiration which set him apart uh, from other performers. Bear in mind, he wasn't one of the golf fraternity. He would much rather sit and watch a movie at home or scribble a few jokes or read a few books, or listen to some music, or drink some whiskey, then go out. He wasn't very sociable, but when he was in a social setting, not the life and soul of the party, but the wittiest person around the table. He wasn't part of the Jimmy Tarbuck, Bruce Forsyth, mm. Robbie Corbett set. Whether he felt slightly, I don't know, alienated by that, I don't know. It was interesting that he was much admired and not necessarily loved, but actually in the end, 
yeah, he was loved by the the viewers and the audience. No, that's lovely to hear. Just sort of going back to the jokes, uh, I, I can't talk to you without referring to the famous joke books. I remember at the time there was the, the headlines about joke books being held to ransom and uh, disappearing and ransom was being paid in car parks, all of that kind of things. And I understand that you're now the guardian of Bob's joke books. Uh, yeah, I was very fortunate that when Bob died, he bequeathed me in his will his joke books. And these are, for your listener, this is a bit of no interest whatsoever. <laughs> but here's one of them. It's a battered old tome and... And here are, I'll give you some mm. idea of what they're like. Yes. There are four of these, and there are 16 typewritten volumes like this, fatter than this. And they're all indexed with subject matter. So for, if you were to say to me, oh, I'm speaking tonight into a, a bunch of counsellors, uh, any jokes on advice? So I could then go to the book, go to A, find advice, and there'll be a few jokes written on device, and maybe some of them will be appropriate. These are the books, and these are, are now at the moment in my custody. Very, very proud of having them. And I knew I was going to get them before Bob died because we were in – he had a house in, in the West Indies. He had a house in Barbados. And we were I was fortunate enough to be over there scribbling jokes for a series called Bob Monkhouse on the Spot, which is a BBC One weekly show of stand-up. And uh, we were going to – a we're driving to a, a satellite, a TV satellite shop in Barbados because he wanted another satellite dish <laughs> for the house. And we got out of the car and he said, oh, by the way, uh, Jack and I have changed the wheel and um, I'm leaving you the joke books. Oh, okay. Well, you're going to outlive me, so I'll never see those. But thank you very much for a very sweet, kind gesture. And these joke books I had seen all my working life with Bob. Mm. When, when you begin, you, you get to see them. But it was, it's all very, you know, you're not seeing them. You're not looking inside. No, absolutely not. And as the years went by, when we wound up doing a, a lunchtime show on the BBC called Wipeout, which is a quiz show, it got to the point where, Carl, can you, oh, gosh, this, this guy's a painter and decorator. Can you look under P for painters to see if there's anything? Because the stuff we've got isn't great. Sure enough, Peter Pritchard, Bob's manager for many, many years, called me up after Bob had died and said, well, yeah, darling. He said, the governor's been good to his word. He's, he's left you the books. So he said, if anyone phones you from the newspapers or whatever, just put them on to me and uh, I'll handle it. And that's how I got to get these books. And I spoke with Abigail Monkhouse in a podcast that will probably go out the same week as mm. you put this one out, Oliver, mm. particular chat we're having. And Abigail said to me, dad said to me, she said, you will make sure Cole uses them. I don't want them to become museum pieces in his attic. I don't want you to think they're so precious he won't use them. And so he left them to me on the understanding and in the hope that I would continue to refer to them and use whatever jokes were in these books in whatever writing I was doing at the time. And I pressed them into service for years after Bob died with other performers and, and indeed the novels that I write now. So, yeah, Bob's jokes live on in these books and indeed in my books as well. Well, that's a wonderful legacy, Colin. That's, that's a really, it's really quite moving. And I suppose that sort of brings me, brings me in mind of Bob was aware for some time that he was terminally ill. How did he manage that? He'd been feeling unwell during the run of Wipeout. And with my medical hat on, yeah, sure, I was making various suggestions, which were what might have been causing this mm. problem. He took mm. himself off to a, to a hospital 
his prostate cancer was eventually diagnosed. And he called me up. Oh, gosh, I can remember receiving that phone call now. And he said, Cole, they've given me two years. And I said, well, well, there's plenty of you. You've got plenty to fight with it, you know. And he said, yeah. He said, it's a deadline. We've worked to deadlines all our life. We'll keep working. But this is a harder deadline than we've ever been used to. And that's how he dealt with it. And you might remember, Oliver, you may remember him appearing on the Parkinson show when he was big with steroids mm. in this fight against the cancers that had invaded his body, that he was making jokes to Michael Parkinson about his cancer and his, his terminal decline. I guess that was the nature of the man. It was another vehicle for getting laughs, I suppose. Even though you're suffering from a, a terminal illness, he's, he's still cracking jokes about it. That's how he handled it, I think, to make fun of it. Yes. And how do you think Bob would feel with the fact that we are talking about him 20 years later? He'd be shocked. <laughs> he would be shocked, amazed. And wondering why. Really? Why? Oh, still banging on about me. Why? Things move on. I oh, wish I was around now, now with Amazon delivering everything to the house. My goodness, I'd love all that. That'll be wonderful. And the fact that Robert Downey Jr. has just turned his career around, and I, as I predicted, all those kinds of things he would be thinking if he was around now. Deep down, he'd be thrilled. And isn't it interesting in that face to face? interview with Jeremy Isaacs in 1997, I think, five years before he died, uh, when Jeremy Isaacs said, you know, what about your legacy? And Bob said, well, I think I'd just as soon be forgotten. Well, how well has that gone, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's marvellous. I mean, I can't let you go without asking, do you have any particular favourite jokes that you created with Bob? A um, couple of examples which aren't terribly good. I always liked his, his wordplay as well. There's an association called the Royal College of Nursing, and he imposed Prince Philip upon it and said, uh, the Royal College of Nursing, as opposed to Prince Philip, which is more about the royal knowledge of cursing. <laughs> For me, that's genius. You're just swapping around two letters mm. of two words, but suddenly it's a totally different meaning that's relevant to Prince Philip. And that speaks to your question with regard to the the creation of joke and the various styles and aspects of comedy that, that you can create with wordplay. That kind of punnery stuff. Um, there was another joke. It was about the poll tax. Said at the time, oh, the poll tax it only affect firemen and strippers. And Bob said, that doesn't work, Cole. What do you mean doesn't? I'm sorry, what? It doesn't work? He said, well, no, it's, it's a, a poll tax. It's P-O-L-L. -L. It's not P-O-L-E. And that was his logic, logical brain <laughs> kicking in. Right, I'll try it. And yeah, it worked, you know, with great respect to the crowd. God bless them. Didn't quite have his articulate sophistication with wordplay. The fact that it sounded vaguely like pole and you get away with pole dancing, mm. you know, it was that precision that I always found to be fascinating, sometimes infuriating, but nine and a half times out of 10, he was always right. Another joke that he wrote, which, which amused me hugely, was. That's the trouble with writing your own autobiography. You never know how it's going to end, which is lovely, <laughs> brutal. You know, and he had he had a bit of an obsession with death, I suppose, because so many jokes involve death on National Lottery Live. Ah, Mystic Meg, she was the, the soothsayer. Mm. You may remember on the National Lottery Live, dear old Meg, wonderful. 
and she would make these pronouncements on, on the live show for entertainment purposes. Bob introduced her by saying, dear old Meg, oh my, she could do a lottery win because where she lives has got woodworm in the lid, you know, and suddenly you've got Mystic Meg living in a coffin and suddenly there's a whole narrative to a two-line reference. Most of Bob's material was very, very saucy. And that's the stuff that I used to love. I used to enjoy it writing, writing the filth. My God, I love doing that. Oh, God, if you can get it in the, as I said to you before, if you can get it in the nappy or the Y fronts, oh, so much the better, because it's a guaranteed laugh. <laughs> a lot of comedians in live performance now use swear words for their laugh. Well, Bob always found if you use a bit of, a bit of rice smut, it doesn't have help. <laughs> Do you still write jokes? Truthfully, I, I don't write jokes anymore. Mm. I can see what the, the, the guys and, and the girls are doing on stage and I can see the reaction it's getting. I don't understand why it gets that reaction and I couldn't write that material that is so personal to them. And it's they're having a conversation with the audience and it, it works ever so well. I can't do that. I suppose it's the difference between Lenny Bruce and Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers was a rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat comedian. Mm. Seven jokes a minute, each of them getting a great crack of laughter with enormous pace and verve. That's my cup of tea. Lenny Bruce would engage the audience in a conversation, which in the 1950s was was a, a revolutionary way of presenting comedy. And I think that's what how comedy has gone now. There's been a, a movement away from quickfire jokes per se. So yes, whenever I write a joke in my head, I still see myself reaching for the phone to tell Bob, seriously, still after all these years, I, oh, I can't make that call. Okay. So in order to keep my fingers on the QWERTY keyboard... I write me steampunk novels, a rather niche genre of science fiction in the Victorian era. Keeps me amused. I enjoy writing them and it enables me to press Bob Monkhouse's jokes into service still. And interestingly, the first two novels that I wrote, audio versions were recorded by Carl Jenkinson, the actor. And the first book won a Sovas Award for audiobooks, which is apparently in the United States is the equivalent of an Oscar. And the second book I wrote won up an internet audiobook award. So here we are. I'm still writing material for other performers to win awards with. <laughs> oh, no, that's wonderful, Colin. Thank you for sharing those memories with us. It's been fascinating to get such a personal insight into Bob and what he was like, what he was like to work with. And and a lot comes through about the generosity of the man, the professionalism of the man, all of these great things. And obviously explains why he was so popular and why his memory has been so endearing. Yeah. And that thrills me enormously. I'm glad that he's been proved wrong. Yeah. Soon to be forgotten. No, I'm sorry. No, that's not going that well, Bob. But here's to Bob. Here's, here's to, Bob, to Bob. Bob. Well, what a privilege for us to get some fantastic memories from one of those who knew Bob best. As I mentioned in the introduction, I would recommend listening to Colin's podcast, Behind the Scenes. It's a fascinating listen and brings out how exciting it must have been to be producing TV shows in those halcyon days of the 70s and 80s. I'd also recommend that you listen to this week's special edition that Colin is putting out of Behind the Scenes, where he's talking to Abigail Monkhouse. And so that should be a really special listen. I will always think of Bob Monkhouse fondly. He was smart, funny, partly thanks to Colin's jokes, obviously. But above all, he always came out as the consummate professional broadcaster, giving respect to audiences, game show contestants, and all of those who he worked with. He also seemed like a genuinely nice bloke. And that means a lot. 
Thanks for joining us for this special edition of the podcast Remembering Bob. I can't believe it's 20 years since we lost him, and I think the world's a poorer place for that. So enjoy finishing off the rest of the turkey and watching some traditional comforting TV as 2023 comes to an end. I hope you join us in 2024 when we return with a brand new season of My 70s TV Childhood. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, look after yourselves. Happy New Year for when it comes. And join us again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.